Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. In this episode, let's discuss Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We are going to talk about Ryan Johnson's sequel to Knives Out, Glass Onion. We actually got a chance to see this in theaters. They played it for one week. We had a blast in the cinema. I found it to be exciting. Once again, he upset our expectations, did something new, and again, gave us another fresh twist on the murder mystery genre. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and because I'm such a huge fan of Knives Out, I think I've watched that movie five or six times. It is just timeless, and I know it's only been, what, seven years, six years removed or something like that, but it's still, I think, just a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And obviously we found out uh, early, a couple of years ago that this was going to be turned into a franchise when Netflix acquired the next two sequels. From They, they showed Ryan the money. And Lionsgate, because <laughs> Lionsgate produced the first film. Uh-huh. And I believe they had the rights along with Ryan Johnson and his producing partner, whose name I can't remember, because Netflix dished out a little over $450 million to the rights to the two sequels. They beat out like Apple and a couple other studios that were bidding for this property for the next two films. And Daniel Craig got a paycheck of $50 million per movie, so $100 million. And Ryan Johnson reportedly got a check for $100 million to direct and write both films. What? So oh my a God. lot of movie was spent on Knives Out, a Glass, a glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery, as well as the third film in this soon-to-be trilogy and eventually probably franchise. I'm sure they'll be making these for a long period of time. It's a lot of cheddar cheese because the first Knives Out movie was very successful. You know, it made, I believe, over $300 million at the global box office, smash hit, Critics and audiences alike love that film, and everyone was really excited about this movie coming out, and it was a really unique uh, release because they did, uh, obviously they premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in September 2022, then also Philadelphia Film Festival in October 2022, the BFI London Film Festival, then it capped off the Miami International Film Festival in November 2022. Wow, and then So they had a release in about 600 theaters for November 23rd, where it played in theaters for just from the 23rd to the 29th, just one week only, sneak preview, and it grossed about $13 million in just 600 theaters. So you got to think that they easily left a couple hundred million dollars of box office on the table because a lot of people were anticipating to see this movie because of the first one, so loved. And it's just a bold move by Netflix because they're trying to figure out how they can coexist with movie theaters and how to market their movies best. And this is a a completely new experiment where they're doing a one-week release, and then a month later, after that release, they're releasing it on Netflix versus like they've done same-day release with theaters and the 45 window with theaters. And it's really interesting because, you know, Netflix has made an adamant point that they're not going, they're not making movies for theatrical release. Their their main motive is to get people to watch on Netflix. However, is this if this is the best way to market their movies for Netflix, that might be the way to go. This also has to do with filmmakers and their contracts. Scorsese uh, was an early filmmaker uh, with his film, The Irishman, where part of the contract was that it had to show in theaters for two weeks. So he wanted that, and so Ryan Johnson, I think, maybe did the same thing with his contract, and then Scott Cooper with The Pale Blue Eye that comes out this uh, next week. No, this week. It came out this the week. The 23rd. So the film Pale Blue Eye came out on the 23rd, and it, then it's going to be released on Netflix on January 6th. So Netflix is releasing it for two weeks before it comes out on the on the streaming app. I think that is a combination of both 
qualifications for Oscars because to qualify for the Oscars, you do have to show in theaters for two weeks before the deadline. But that can just be one theater you can screen your film at. So they don't have to do a wide release. So the 600 theaters was a big deal. I believe that, you know, filmmakers like Scorsese, Scott Cooper, Ryan Johnson, they probably feel really strongly about theatrical releases and about having their film seen in an actual cinema on a big screen, the way that they intended it, the way they designed the film, and the way they imagined it. And so Netflix, I think that they have to kind of work around what the directors are demanding. And they're trying to find a middle happy area where filmmakers are happy with the films going in theaters, but then also Netflix is happy because we spend all this money on it. It needs to be on our app as soon as possible. So I think this is kind of like a combination of both what the directors want and what the uh, the company wants to do uh, theatrical and then uh, streaming. And this deal with Netflix was worked out with AMC Theaters, Regal Cinemas, as well as Cinemark. And Deadline Hollywood later reported that Netflix agreed to take a lower amount of the rental revenue than usual from theaters from 40% to 60 to 70%, as well as to from 40% versus usually 67%, as well as to kick in four times the average amount of money for exhibitor marketing. Deadline also reported that some similar exhibitors were interested in playing the film were shut down from the one-week limited release as Netflix preferred more popular theaters for Glass Onion. So they selected very few theaters in the entire country. There's several thousand, like upwards of four or five thousand 5, 5, theaters yeah. in the United States. They chose 600, probably a couple international ones as well. And only major ones, only major chains that everyone knows and recognizes. And that's interesting that they took less of a cut and bumped up revenue and, mar- and bumped up marketing for those theaters to present nice, uh, Glass Onion in their theaters. It's a it's a gamble. Obviously, Netflix can burn all the money they want. Clearly, I mean, this movie four hundred fifty million dollars just to acquire the rights and pay the the top billed cast as well as forty million dollar budget for the film, which is actually pretty small compared to. <laughs> Wait, so Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig made more than the budget? Yeah, of the, of the well, rest they're of getting the film. paid for those both movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. the second and third. Uh-huh. But they both got yeah, they both got paid more than, more than the, the budget act- yeah. of that first movie in, for that movie to direct and write and star in it. <laughs> that's, a, that's which is insane. wild. That's but, a lot of money. But that takes well, like Anthony's always brought up many times where a lot of studios are now factoring in the cost of royalties that would be paid to actors and actresses and, uh, and producers and filmmakers yeah. for. You know, gross of a movie in its entire lifetime on royalties, they're giving that upfront to actors nowadays and factoring that in. Now that they own the streamer owns the movie outright, it's only gonna play. There's no way for it really to get make money besides streaming and maybe merchandise and stuff like that. Yeah. So, for example, if this movie had been made 15 years ago before streaming, Daniel Craig probably would have been paid 25 million um, upfront, and then he probably over the course of the 30 years would make the other 25 million from royalties. And this is from licensing, from rentals, from sales of DVDs or Blu-rays. All these things combined to the royalties that an actor or a filmmaker will make after the film is released. And so because of the rise of streaming, contracts got all messed up. And so actors and filmmakers and writers, they got absolutely met, they got gypped when their films started going onto streaming apps because there was nothing that no one prepared for that. They're used to making the royalties in the back end. Uh, and that makes people actually live very comfortably getting that royalty check every month. And so now... Very comfortably. Yeah. So now <laughs> now streamers, when they are producing a film, not buying a film, it's different. The Netflix either will either produce a film like this or they'll buy a film to license it on their app for a, cu- a couple of years or one year. So this is a case where they produced the film, funded it. And so they just put... They just added up. What would the royalties be for Daniel Craig to star in this film and then like 30 years of royalties? And back end. 
Yeah, and they just do it up front. Especially because the game's changed so much where a movie would come out, just to get a little bit off track. No, no, it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating topic. Movies would come out, and even if it didn't have a huge box office, a lot of production companies and studios, they they could count on the DVD sales and the VOD sales to be kind of like a second box office. And then you make your money back and you end up making your profit if you didn't necessarily make it on the theatrical release. You make it on the back end off the DVD Blu-ray sales. But this is not going to be on DVD. This is not going to be on Blu-ray. This is just going to be only watching on Netflix. You can't rent it from Amazon. So that's why things are changing and there's, everyone's kind of just figuring out the best way to go about paying actors, paying for acquisitions of IPs and properties and just going forward for studios to remain profitable. And I also think that well, the, yeah, staying so, stay in the green and everything. I also think the theatrical release can benefit Netflix because, first of all, you make a little extra money, especially if they release it for two weeks. They probably could have pulled in maybe 30 to 40 million. But also, it helps with the word of mouth. You know, you talk to people who go see this film and maybe they're like, oh, I loved it. It was so good. It was amazing. And then that makes people they talk to more likely to watch it when it does come out on Netflix if they didn't catch it in theaters. As opposed to just dropping on Netflix and like it just it's just a thumbnail. You see, theatrical releases if they go well, it builds a great word of mouth, and so I think that can help uh, direct to streaming releases like this for the app like Netflix. However, I do wish that Glass Onion: A Knives Out Mystery was a full-on theatrical release, maybe at least for a forty-five day window, and then put on Netflix because you know we need movies that are unique and original to make big box offices that are non-superhero-based. We need movies like this to perform well at the box office to give more films like this a budget. And obviously, Netflix paying that much money, they're not going to put it in theaters necessarily because they don't need to. They, they have so much money, even though they've had, they don't need the theater, they've theater had a couple money. bad quarters yeah. the last few, but you know they still have a lot of money to spend. And they're, they light money on fire like with acquiring Knives Out of Mystery. A glass onion, knives out mystery. But I still wish it would have been a theatrical release to put faith in original properties for not just Netflix but other studios to fund and give budgets to original stories and non IPs, non uh, non corporate owned intellectual properties mm-hmm. like this. Eventually, now it's corporate owned, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was original. Original. Yeah. It was original from Ryan Johnson, and now you know we don't get to see the performance it would have had. But I wish it had a full theatrical release just so we could see the numbers so people could be like, yeah, I don't have to only see superhero movies. Yeah, because if this film had come out only in theaters, I think it would have done really well at the box office because just like the first film, this film was extremely entertaining. I had an amazing cast of talented performers who all played eclectic characters. It was exciting. The mystery intrigue was just as good as the first film. It had terrific twists. And I just think I, I really enjoyed the film. It was a very fitting sequel to Knives Out. And if you like Knives Out, you are really going to love this film. Uh, and we got an excellent villain with Edward Norton. It was great to see him in, in a villain Ooh, role. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> it's worth 10 minutes in. Uh, we had, I haven't seen him as a villain since, like, maybe the 2000s. Yeah. Since, um, what's it, the, uh, the remake? Primal Fear? Uh, no, no, the English re- the remake of the English film with Michael Caine. The, the heist one with the oh Cooper's. the Italian job the Italian job I think that may have been his last villain role uh, oh no he was um he was the uh, secret villain in Alita Battle Angel but he just showed up as a post credit scene I mean he's pretty villainous in American yeah. History X yeah <laughs> and also great, Kate Hudson is great it was awesome to see Dave Bautista is really getting very good at acting and he's beginning to really hold his own with very seasoned actors and I think he's done a terrific job with his career so far there's um, a reason why Villeneuve has cast him twice yeah exactly. Catherine Hahn is excellent as always, and also there are a couple of newcomers as well. Jessica Heinwick 
who I think is amazing. She has a great role. I wish she had a bigger role, um, but she's still, I think, is building her career in Hollywood. So she's playing lesser, she's playing smaller supporting roles still at this point. But I think she has a, a, a great career ahead of her. And so I was very impressed by the cast. Janelle Monet has a terrific role, and she did an amazing job in it as well. And then, of course, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc just steals every scene he's in. He's so much fun to watch. Uh, they got we got some more backstory on him. We know him better as a character before he was just the detective, but now he feels like a more fully fleshed out human being. Now uh, we know all about his life now. So I I really enjoyed the film. I think Ryan Johnson. It's always difficult to make a sequel, but he did a very good job with this one. Don't forget about Leslie Odom Jr. Oh, Leslie Odom Jr. Everyone great. knows yeah. from uh, a Hamilton mm -hmm. in a couple other projects. But I really like Glass Onion. Compared to Knives Out, though, I think Knives Out is a superior film. Yeah. I would have been shocked if Ryan Johnson was able to pull off something better than that because I personally think that Knives Out, the original, is just a magnificent piece of filmmaking. We did an entire episode talking about that movie. It was like an hour and a half because we adore it so much. And it's, I love that script. It's a truly yeah. exceptional film and story from the craft, the acting, the writing. Everything about that film is terrific. It's a perfect movie, in my opinion. And it was Anna de Armas' big breakout. Big time. Yeah. And Glass Onion, it's a very good movie, but not quite the brilliance that I think Ryan Johnson found with the first film. And But, you know, the themes are similar, but I would say, you know, um, first of all, Knives Out, that's like old money, nepotism, those are like some of the main themes. And then this is more of like new money coming in yeah, yeah. and like dealing with tech that. money, tech money, new money, modern money. But I think what Johnson does so well with both films is they're modernized. You know, so like Kenneth Branagh and Ryan Johnson have really reinvigorated the murder mystery ensemble movie, which was so popular a long time ago, but it kind of just disappeared. But now it's back. And these two guys have really just breathed so much life into that genre that was loved for so long and so many great murder mystery books. Agatha Christie, uh, Sherlock Holmes novels, everything like that. People adore them so much. And then to bring them back... And what, you know, Kenneth Branagh does has done a terrific job. I loved the last, I love what he's done, Death on the Nile, and then... Uh, Murder on the Orient Express was fantastic. They're terrific yeah. movies, so well made. Yeah. These are also terrific movies, really well made as well. But what Ryan Johnson has done is he's modernized the murder mystery, whereas Kenneth Branagh's, they're still very traditional and also period pieces. Yeah. These are modern. And what he does so well is bringing cultural nuances that are happening at the moment of filmmaking into his movies, we all we saw that obviously with Knives Out, the first one with the smartphones and the tweeting and the the cultural and political <laughs> yeah, yeah, opinions yeah. <laughs> of both sides with the, with the grandkids, especially the grandkids, the, yeah. but also the the, the sons, the, yeah, and great and, and daughters, yeah. great great subtle nuanced things happening in that. And then he brought that same energy and that same cultural relevance to Knives Out with scenes like the mask scene, which I don't think completely worked for the audience, but it was relevant to the time of filming because they were filming during COVID. Yeah, the thing with the masks is I got PTSD watching yeah, it. Yeah, I was, it was like, like... I was like... Yeah, when they started showing up with masks at the at the bay, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it just made, it made me feel anxious. Uncomfortable, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but they did... It was pretty funny. Ethan Hawke had a funny cameo where he's just a guy... And he just like squirts uh, a, uh, some kind of gas into their mouths. And he's like, you're good. You're good. You're good now. And I think that was just like Ryan Johnson like showcasing. Like this is a metaphor for, you know, like the uh, big pharma in government just saying, okay, now you're good. You're good. You're, you're, you're good. good. <laughs> so I think Ethan Hawke was just like a, a representation of that. And it was – I was actually – I was so bummed when he left. And I was too. like, I was like, wait, that's there's no more Ethan Hawke. They just got he, on a boat because we saw the set yeah. photos yeah, months like, ago. I, was, I thought so. I was expecting Ethan Hawke to be the ultimate villain of the film, 
And then I will say my biggest problem with the film is that Ethan Hawke is only had two minutes. That's of my time. main con. Like <laughs> I was so sad to see Ethan Hawke bounce. He probably had so much fun just yeah. like filming. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but it was like it, I also got PTSD when I was watching that movie. Oh, like, my, oh god. my god! I was like, but I liked how he depicted how people wear masks differently. Yeah, yeah. There's the girl that like, gets a fashion statement mask where it's like like uh, Birdie J's. It's yeah. like see through. Yeah, see through <laughs> mesh. <laughs> and then um, Catherine Hahn has it under her nose. And then um. Duke ben, Cody, Duke yeah. Cody's not even wearing one. And, and Benoit's Benoit's is very fashionable and matches his outfit. I like how he shows like the personalities that people put into their mask wearing, but which you the, saw in real yeah. life. But other great political and and cultural relevant nuances and themes throughout the film are obviously going after billionaires, which Ryan Johnson is well aware of. I think his audience, especially the opinions of Gen Zs and millennials, how that's really big. On. He's always done that. Yeah, in so the Last Jedi, that's yeah. in there as well. Not to mention, I like how he went after. After politicians from both sides really because he went after politicians even though a lot of them say they're like yeah I'm so I care so much about the environment I want to we're going green uh you know sustainable mm -hmm. energy but they're all backed by major corporations that destroy the environment yeah. it's really ironic and I thought it was really refreshing to see that him go after every kind of politician not yeah. just one side because um Catherine Hahn's interview on TV was on I think it was CNN was the news station that they had Correct me if I'm wrong. So I do like how he, he showed that with her character, the politician, and just the corporatization of politics is really illustrated well with Catherine Hahn's character and Edward Norton's character and their relationship. And then also, you know, I love the concept of the glass onion, which he came up with the title and the idea, and then he was researching the word glass onion. That's when he stumbled upon the Beatles song that's called Glass Onion, which plays at the end credits of the movie. And, you know, you go into a murder mystery movie and you expect it to have layers and to be complex and twists and turns. And obviously, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion movie nails that. It meets your expectations of what you want from a murder mystery movie. Same thing with like a murder mystery novel. It's what you want in that story. So he does a great job doing that and layering it. But also, the main theme of the film, the title of the film being A Glass Onion, it's completely transparent. And the, the solution to the problem is the simplest of it all. Obviously, Miles ends up being the killer and the victim. I mean, the, the enemy of the film, the antagonist and and the bad guy and the murderer and everything like that. Because yeah. it, it's so obvious it's there, but like the complexity of the concept of the murder mystery blinds, you could say, everyone to that fact. But I do think there's a con where with that concept, Benoit Blanc, the greatest detective in the world, he kind of immediately dismisses Miles as a potential uh, killer. killer pretty immediately which kind of i think ryan johnson put in the script to make us want to not think that it's miles because he's so dumb dumb and dim-witted and arrogant and such a fraud and unoriginal that he couldn't possibly concoct this murder scheme however i think that just like kind of took it away from me for benoit blanc the character where like why would he immediately dismiss somebody without looking into the evidence yeah i kind of agree i i also i thought it was miles very early on and i and i was kind i was a bit like, it wasn't as surprising of a reveal as I was hoping it would be, like um, the amazing twist in Knives Out. And also Ransom was like, you weren't sure because you thought Ransom was helping her out the whole time. And so Ransom being the, the killer in the first one, that was a great twist after the huge twist in the at the end of the first act. And so with this film, I kind of predicted, I was like, this guy's probably the, guy, the bad guy. And then so I was kind of like a little underwhelmed at the reveal of him being the ultimate villain. Uh, in a way, they were all villains of the story, but he was the, obviously the killer. 
And so that I was like, I was a little disappointed of the lack of a shocking twist for who the culprit was. But that being said, I think Ryan Johnson did an amazing thing early on, like he did with Knives Out, where we revealed that how um, the grandfather um, was killed accidentally. We thought accidentally, and then we learned that he was actually drugged, but no, murdered, murdered. But but that great twist of showing that, like thinking, making the audience think that it was her fault right away. And in this film. So Miles has this murder mystery planned for his weekend with his old friends. And I absolutely adored and I was cackling when Benoit solved his mystery in a fucking in like 30 seconds. And He's like, when do we start? And, and he ruined Miles' entire weekend. And he got like watching Benoit get like so excited, like um, shouting out every detail and every little nuanced thing. And and then he he solved the murder with the arrow in the chest and then and then I just loved that. And then when Miles is like, I paid Julian Flynn to, to write that. <laughs> you know how much she cost? I, I really loved how Ryan Johnson, once again, threw in a fun twist to like uh, invert our expectations pretty immediately in the first act. And if you and we'll get into it in a second, but that whole entire f- fake murder mystery is a uh, metaphor, basically yeah. previews the or foreshadows the entire mystery. Actually, I can I can reveal that right yeah, now. Yeah, so, we're already in. So yeah. from inside uh, the Miles murder mystery game that Benoit solved immediately foreshadowed the real murder mystery. First, Miles has a packet of fake blood in his shirt to simulate being killed, which mirrors the hot sauce packet Benoit used later to to take on to make it look like Helen was shot on the stairs. Second, the solution to the murder, the fake one, was actually very simple but it's filled with nonsensical layers to confuse guests and the audience just like the script of the film, which is why it's actually a really well-clever script because he did it on purpose, Ryan Johnson, with this. Third, the answer to the mystery is hidden in plain sight while the necklace containing the diamond is right in front of them during the meal. The napkin with the plans for the company is in Miles' office, hidden behind the false napkin. And finally, Miles took credit for something he didn't create. He introduces the game by saying that he spent a lot of time crafting the plot, but later confesses that someone else wrote the whole thing. That's what he said to yeah. Benoit. <laughs> it's exactly how he took credit for Andy's hard work building Alpha and then stole the company out from under her. And Julian Flynn, if you don't know, the writer of Gone Girl, so a great murder mystery writer. <laughs> so, yeah. That was one that of was the best a great jokes line. The movie, the movie was... had tons of great jokes, tons of great laughs. Yeah. Sometimes they didn't always hit. But I think there's plenty of great humor sprinkled all throughout this movie. Yeah, I would say, because we saw it with a packed theater, and I would say the jokes worked most of the time, but there were definitely jokes that didn't land with the audience. But I think the audience overall enjoyed the comedy. I, I certainly did. And uh, I also liked the, because that f- the first half of the film I was confused because Benoit was acting so naive and kind of silly. And like aloof in in some capacity, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I'm and, just oh I didn't I got here by accident. Yeah. I'm, I'm just happy to be here. And then, yeah, and then we revealed that was all an act, and so I liked that because we got like Benoit was like acting, you know what I mean? Just like Andy was, and so Helen, the, Helen. Well, no, she's Andy. Well, Helen is acting as Andy. Oh, I'm sorry, I got them. So Andy's Andy's the, the, the business uh, the, one, the, the, the the successful sister. Okay, sorry. So Helen, Helen's the, Helen's the Alabama. Helen's the Alabama school teacher. Alabama. <laughs> and so okay, so they were both putting on a show. But I didn't realize Benoit was putting on an act until halfway through the film. So that was also another great twist when we revealed that there they had it actually they had a plan and a motive that they walked into the island with. Now I have a little information on the screenplay and story and how Ryan Johnson came up with it, according to the Hollywood Reporter and Variety. That I would love to share with everybody. Uh, I would love to hear that. Ryan Johnson made it clear that Glass Onion was not a continuation of its predecessor, but a standalone film featuring a new story and cast similar to Hercule Poirot novel series by Agatha Christie. Also, he almost 
had her, um, Benoit Blanc do a completely different accent and didn't wasn't going to explain it just for fun. Uh-huh. But he ended up cutting that. It probably confused the audiences too much. Yeah. Now, in addition to Christie novels, he took inspiration from tropical getaway murder mysteries like Evil Under the Sun and especially The Last of Shella, saying it's structured around a group of friends or frenemies who all have a power dynamic with one of their successful friends. It begins with them sending an invitation for them to come and play this murder mystery game at this exotic locale. In The Last of Shella, it's on his yacht and everything ends up going horribly wrong. That is essentially how Glass Onion begins. Johnson wanted the film's title to refer to something hidden in plain sight. He chose Glass because it's clear and searched his phone for songs with the word. He landed on Glass Onion by The Beatles and, as a fan of the band, picked it as the title. Of course, Great every, song. everyone's a fan of the band. Great song. The song is featured in the end credits of the film. Brought that up earlier. Now, the character of Benoit Blanc also was revealed to be gay in this film, Glass Onion. When asked if it was always the plan to have Benoit Blanc be a queer character, Johnson said, I wasn't really thinking about it, but yeah, I would say so. It kind of made sense to the point that when I started with the second one, it didn't feel like a big decision. When it was the time to get a glimpse of his home life, it felt very natural. And obviously, we got the great cameo of Hugh, Hugh Grant, Grant being his partner yeah. in the home life, which was so That was fun. really surprising. I was like, it's Hugh Grant! What? There's, a, there's a ton of great cameos in yeah. this movie. Now, I want to run through the cast list real quick, as well as the cameos. So, mm-hmm. obviously, Daniel Craig as Benoit, Edward Norton as Miles Braun, Janelle Monet as Hen- Helen Brand, the sister of Miles' ex-business partner, Cassandra Andy Brand. And so, but Janelle Monet plays both Andy and Helen in this film. Edward Norton is... And Miles Braun, a billionaire and owner of a large tech company. Catherine Hahn as Claire DeBella, the governor of Connecticut, now running for the Senate. Leslie Odom Jr. as uh, Lionel Toussaint, the head scientist for Miles' company. Kate Hudson as Bertie J, a former supermodel turned fashion designer. Dave Bautista as Duke Cody, a Twitch streamer and men's rights activist. <laughs> <laughs> men's rights activist. <laughs> Jessica Henwick as Peg, Bertie's assistant. Madeline Klein as Whiskey, Duke's girlfriend and Twitch channel assistant. Noah Segan, who has a bunch of great little cameos. He's in this movie. great. This is his best set of cameos because he's always in uh, Ryan Johnson yeah, movies. So he's the the he's the uh, the cop, not the detective, in the first Knives Out mystery, yeah. who is basically assisting. Um, who what's his name? Um, from Atlanta. I'm sorry. Oh, the actor. Yeah. I can't. Remember. I was trying to think what's of his, his name? name. Detective. Oh my name. god. Uh, I just blanked. <laughs> I love him too. Uh, clearly, we love him so oh much. Oh my god! What's his name? Hold on, it's gonna come to me. It's gonna come to me. It's gonna come to me. Luke Lakeith. Lakeith, Lakeith Stanfield. Stanfield. Yeah, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, so Lakeith Stanfield is the main detective. So Noah Segan's actually in all of Ryan Johnson's movies. So isn't Joseph Gordon-Levitt having cameos in most of his movies besides the ones he stars in? Which What's we'll get, his cameo in this? I'll get to that in a second. So Noah Segan plays Daryl, a slacker who lives on Miles Island. <laughs> so he plays Trooper Wagner in Knives Out. Jackie Hoffman as Ma Cody, Duke's mother. And Dallas Roberts as Devon DeBella, Claire's husband. Additionally, we talked about Ethan Hawke, who briefly appears as Miles' assistant. He's credited as efficient man in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Grant is Philip Blanc's domestic partner. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, his cameo in this movie is Miles Clock, the hourly dong. Oh my God, that's Joseph serious? Gordon-Levitt's no voice. No way, that's funny. He's also got a cameo in Knives Out where he plays, he's one of the voice actors on the, the computer, I believe, where Anna de Armas is watch, Anna de Armas's sister is watching that movie. Uh-huh. Oh, from the uh, the soap drop, yeah, soap opera. I think that's JGL. No, no, voice. yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is. It is. And then several other cameos include Stephen Sodomheim before his, which was his final posthumous role. 
Angela Lansbury, also her final posthumous role. Natasha Leone, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Yo-Yo Ma, Jake Oh, yeah, in the, in the Zoom call. Serena Williams has a great cameo where she's a, a fitness instructor. <laughs> Jared Leto. That was a great cameo. And Jer Jeremy Renner's likenesses appear on bottles of kombucha for Jared Leto. The, and the Jeremy Renner hot sauce? Jeremy yeah, yeah. Renner's hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. So damn funny. <laughs> I gotta say, the, uh, the hot sauce dripping down... Helen's face to her nose. Oh my god, that was terrifying. That was like the most anxiety-inducing scene I've seen all year. I think <laughs> it was really terrific. It's clever. Yeah. So okay, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt's cameo. It, yeah. So he voices the detective Hard Rock, a character within an in-universe TV series that lead character Marta's sister is watching. Or is Marta mm. watching it? Marta's sister. Marta's watching sister it. watching it. And, and then her, Marta's the, upset. Yeah, and Marta's then her mom upset. yells her yeah. to turn it off. Uh, so we don't see him on screen, but yeah. So JGL always makes a cameo in in uh, Ryan Johnson's movies, even the, in the Star Wars movies. I believe he voices characters. He in voiced those as well. he voiced the the alien that points out to the security um, Finn. Yeah, he, he he points out them like, oh, they're trying to escape. They caused the they did this, and then that's JGL's like his voice is like this. <laughs> so lots of great information. Again, an incredible cast. So many fun cameos, and I loved. Staying with the cultural relevance in modern times, you know, opening the movie with the Zoom call of of people on yeah, Zoom, yeah, yeah. Benoit Blanc, yeah. people being separated, how people were acting during the lockdowns where, you know, Birdie's got a whole party going on. Everyone else, a lot of other people are just being secluded. But I do, and, and Benoit Blanc in the tub and everything, and I like how Benoit Blanc is bad at Clue and hates Clue and he's bad at Among Us, but he's a terrific detective in real life. It's, it's pretty funny and ironic and kind of fits for the character. But I, a little too Sherlock. As a huge fan of yeah, Sherlock, we, so we love. I, I know we all make fun of us for it, but we we're big fans of the Sherlock novels and the films and the short stories. Yeah. And so I get that Benoit was heavily inspired by Sherlock Holmes for Ryan Johnson writing, creating the character. You know, he's just from Louisiana. I mean, yeah. from uh, uh, from New Orleans instead. But you know, it's a little on the nose of him not having cases and losing his mind in the tub and like going crazy. I thought it was too, a little too close that yeah. scene, the dialogue he had. Because that like, happens in every Sherlock story. I felt story. like I was reading a, a, the yeah. opening of a Sherlock story. Yeah, because he didn't seem like that in the first film. He didn't seem like he had that issue. Because Sherlock, when he's not on a case, he's losing his mind. He he goes, he falls into drugs and... and it's all over that opium. So <laughs> His life is just chaos and he can't focus on anything. And then when he gets a case... He's just he sobers up and he's just like sharp, um, and it. But when he doesn't have a case, his home is in disarray, and he's just like in the sometimes in the funniest situations. They do a good job in the Guy Ritchie films depicting how how crazy it can be. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes they're not even like they're not even going as far as the books go. Sometimes like yeah, he's sometimes he's just super high on opium, like losing his losing his shit. So I also when when he's like when Benoit was in his tub and he hadn't left there for days and his his bathroom is just covered in stuff it was funny but also as a huge sherlock fan i thought it was a little too much of like too a little too sherlocky i, I get, totally I, agree he's, he's obviously paying yeah. homage yeah, yeah, but yeah i think yeah. it's a little too much homage yeah and a little too much for it and obviously many people who are watching knives out have probably never read a sherlock holmes book or novel yeah and they don't maybe they don't realize how spot on it is but i get it it's it's inspired by sherlock. it was funny it, it was, was funny yeah, yeah. I, I liked it but um I, I like the relevance of the times but he it, is different where sherlock would never talk to people 
He's he's yeah. an anti- <laughs> so anti-social, whereas Benoit is like Zoom calling with his friends all day, like famous, like real yeah. people, which yeah. is funny, like Kareem Abdul Jabbar, <laughs> Natasha. So random. Um, Natasha o- was in it. I'm sorry because she stars in the new TV show that Ryan Johnson produced. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're buds as well. But <laughs> it's pretty funny. But it's a good opening. I like the mystery box of solving the puzzles and how we think Andy is Andy. It's not actually Helen who smashes it open because she doesn't want to deal with the BS of yeah. of uh, Miles Braun. Wonderful production design of that box, by the way. Excellent it was, t- I w- it was beautiful. I loved the design. It, the contraption was really a, like a stunning piece of design. Uh, whoever the team was that designed that did an amazing job with it. Now, the production designers of Knives Out, uh, they did. we talked about that in that episode. How they did a terrific job. With the props, the set design, uh, David Crank did that first one. I wonder if he did the the next one. Let me check if David directors Crank... generally work with the same PDs. Usually, so so he worked on. So he did. He was the production designer of Knives Out. Let me see who the production designer. Oh, so production designer of Glass Onion was Rick Heinrichs. Mm-hmm. Different production designer, but still did a terrific job. The first one is excellent. We talked about the sets, the decor. The props all over the, the room, painting, the paintings, and everything. Yeah, yeah the the uh, the uh, smile. The what was the family name? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry guys, <laughs> it's early. It's the morning. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the production design of this film was also excellent. So many little details that maybe you didn't pick up on. Like I, I think the the painting, the background of. Miles Braun, who's like shirtless and shredded, it was really funny. But again, also the reference to Magnolia, Tom Cruise's Magnolia outfit and hair that Edward Norton's wearing in the flashback bar scene. He's got the he's got. Did you recognize? Oh yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, the brown button up with the black vest, and then the basically the the ninja hair. That's Tom Cruise in Magnolia. It was great. But yeah, production design was stellar of this film for sure. Harlan Thrombey. Thrombey's the Thrombey's the Thrombey Estates. <laughs> but, we even host a movie podcast. But in addition to excellent production design, script, acting, everything, cinematography, also oh yeah, the cinematographer. Who I wonder if it's the same one because the cinematographer for well, Knives Out was a new one for him. It was that was a new cinematographer he had never worked with before. So maybe he went back to his old DP, or he went or he kept with, kept uh, the same DP as last. Stephen Yedlin did cinematography for Knives Out. We talked about how he did such a terrific job using digital cameras, making it seem and feel like film. But let me check if he also did Glass Onion cinematography. Uh, it was also it was done. Yeah, Stephen Yedlin again. So yeah, Ryan must like him now. He also did loop. Yeah, so he did Looper with him as well. Oh, okay. He also did, ironically, Death on the Nile. Oh no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Steve, yeah, but Steve Yedlin did Brick. He's done all of his movies except oh, for the Star Wars one. I time. wonder what I was. I think maybe you're just thinking of the Star Wars. Yeah, I think I'm Star Wars. Yeah, new cinematographer. I don't think he did them for Star Wars, but he did Brick. He did Looper, Knives Out. I'm guessing he did Brothers Bloom as well. Must have. Yeah, must have. But also working with the same uh, team again. Nathan Johnson did the score for Knives Out, the Glass Onion one, as well as Knives Out the original, and he is Ryan Johnson's cousin, mm-hmm. keeping it in the family. But I love the score to Knives Out, and I thought he did a terrific job with Glass Onion as well. Does it? What's his? He has a cousin who does something else on films. Is it graphic design? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. He he makes like the posters. I some, believe some arts artwork. Yeah, yeah, artwork. Yeah, or the credits. I think credit the credits he does, um, the title credits, but. The film was really well made. I think it was it was uh, beautiful, especially with the minimum budget they were working with for the actual production. I like the setting on the island. I think uh, Ever Norton's character was really funny and charming, but in like a douchebag kind of way. <laughs> uh, but although we are getting a lot of the same like aloof billionaire over and over again, so I, I would like to see like a new portrayal of a billionaire, hopefully in the future. Yeah, I know. I know people hate billionaires. 
and everything like that. But it, it's, it's becoming like the, the aloof hippie billionaire seems to be like a, a, a trend. cliche now. Yeah, it's, it's you know becoming I mean? a trend and you're expecting them to just be the biggest idiot in the room yeah. and probably the villain of the movie and the story. That's all, I also that's why I thought he would be the villain because yeah. he was the billionaire. I get it. But but all of, but it was really well done. I think the cast did an amazing job because everyone felt so had their own like personality. Uh they felt like real people a lot of the times. I like how he is staying connected to modern culture whereas uh Dave Bautista's character Duke is like the first person to ever have a million streamers on Twitch. Uh so staying relevant and he was very funny. He looked like the horse trank the horse um what do you call it? The uh the horse pills. Oh yeah yeah. Or like wh- whatever it is. The hu- the horse like penis pills. Penis pills, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And but Kate Kate Hudson, she did a great job. I hadn't seen her in anything for a while. Uh, it was she was really fantastic and you know, with movies like Almost Famous, you you kind of because I haven't seen her in that many things the last few years. You forget how charming she is and how how much the camera loves her and and how much she can really light up the screen with her personality and her acting chops. And she was really fantastic. And uh, they all played great archetypal archetypical characters. Uh, I really loved them all. They all had a great amount of screen time. It was really well balanced for every character. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. did a terrific job as well. And I, I loved. How these characters get, because I wasn't sure at first, like, why these characters are all so different from one another. Why are they all friends? At first I was like, what? It didn't make sense. But then you learn that they all basically suck on the teat of Miles. Suck on the teat. Yeah. (laughs) And he's got control of them with money. Yeah. The disruptors and everything. The disruptors, yeah. And also Janelle Monae has a very juicy role in this movie. And I'm sure she had a blast playing this character because she played two roles. Twins! Of Andy and Helen. And we'll get more to Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, but how about we'll head into our intermission and then we'll get back to the film. Sounds good. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have tiers at $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tier. $10 and up, you get access to our Discord, but every tier has awesome perks, so definitely check that out at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. And also be sure to get tickets to our live show, which is going to be on Saturday, January 21st. That's 12 p.m. noon Pacific time. We're going to be performing live in Los Angeles, so you can get in-person tickets from DynastyTypewriter.com, as well as you can watch the broadcast live from anywhere around the world as it's happening with the audience at moments.co slash Raiders of the Lost. Again, you can get in-person tickets or digital live broadcast tickets. The link in all of our Instagram bios, as well as the bio of this episode and all past episodes, will have those tickets for sale. And this episode is sponsored by our friends at movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Movieposters.com has a huge library of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster arsenal. They also have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. Our home and set is decked out with a ton of these posters. These are high quality, beautiful prints, and also very affordable, especially with our code. So again, if you want to get yourself some movie posters, head on over to movieposters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today now let's get into our intermission beginning with the movie quote competition you ready pal ready this one's for me the game is tailored specifically to each participant think of it as a great vacation except you don't go to it 
It comes to you. It comes to you. Can you say it again? The game. The game is tailored specifically to each participant. Think of it as a great vacation, except you don't go to it. It comes to you. Game night? Nope. I don't know. The game. Oh, the game. <laughs> <I can. laughs> so you said it too. So dumb. <laughs> so dumb. Oh, man. I love Excellent it. movie. If you haven't seen it, yeah. Fincher. Fincher. Sec- second movie, I think. Yeah, after third, third one after. So what do you do? Aliens? Seven. And then the game. Do you do the game after seven? Yeah. Are you sure? Very sure. Wow, I didn't know that. Seven was like 96, bro. I thought seven was 95. Well, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, 95. And yeah. then Aliens was... No, Alien 3 was like 92. Wow. Yeah, cool. Then he did... Oh, Pan- yeah, the game was 1997. Yeah, then he did Panic Room. And then Fight Club's in 1999. Wow, oh, sorry, so, yeah, he did Fight... The Pan- game? Yeah. So he did, so he did um, Seven, The Game, then Fight Club. Yeah. Wow, what a th- freaking five years. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Good stuff. Hey, Panic Room is awesome, too. Anyways, okay, here's my quote. <clears throat> you see, Billy, it's like this. You either smoke or you get smoked. And you got smoked. Say that again? You see, Billy, it's like this. You either smoke or you get smoked. And you got smoked. Huh. I don't know. That's Sydney in White Man Can't Jump. <laughs> <laughs> it went to training day in White Man Can Jump in my head, but yeah. I wasn't sure. Should have stuck with my your gut. gut. Yeah, man. All right, guess this movie release year. Mulholland Drive. 1999. 2001. Oh, man. The People versus Larry Flint. What year did it come out? 2007. (laughs) 1996. Woody still had hair. Yeah. All right. Movie pop quiz time. Who directed L.A. Confidential? Excellent movie, by the way. Excellent movie. Shoot, that's a good question. Um, man, it is very well directed, but I'm pretty sure it's not an extremely successful director. Um, I am going to. I hate not guessing, but I just have nothing. I don't know. He made uh, Eight Mile. That helps. What's the guy's name? Um, Gary F. No, I don't know. Curtis Hansen. Curtis Hansen. I would not have gotten that. He won Best Director for Lily Confidential. Yeah. Wow. Oh, nominated. Okay. I was gonna say. I was yeah. You know, it was that. I won any awards. Really awesome. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Okay. How many basketball movies has Woody Harrelson started? Hmm. Good question. I feel like it's a trick question. I'm going to go with one. Well, how many? Three. Three? What are the other ones? So White Man Can't Jump. Yeah. Semi Pro. Oh, I forgot he's in <laughs> Semi Pro. <laughs> and then he has a film coming out um, in January called Champions, where he plays the coach of a, uh, of a basketball team. Oh, I saw the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Semi Pro. I think everyone forgot about Semi Pro. Honestly, is he on the team? Yeah, he's the co-lead. He's the he's the best player on the team that Will recruits. I dude, he's the um. Yeah, I got some feedback. I would say that again. 
Yeah, he's the like the star player of the team, like the best on the team that um, Will Ferrell. Recruits. I I blank every time I think yeah. of that movie. I just I think it was just so unmemorable that I forgot about. It. But I know some people love it, but I just yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't for me. Yeah, same. But um, yeah, he's he's really great. <laughs> All right, do we have any, yeah? Uh, what he's really great. I forgot he's in that movie. <laughs> do we have any uh, haters this week, Anthony? Or subscribers? Uh, I don't think we have any unsubscribes because this oh. is actually, um, this is the third day in a row we're filming, so we burned through our unsubscribes the last two days. So. It's all good. I'm sure some people are unsubscribing. I don't. I do, but I do have. Um, I thought I had a good comment that I wanted to share. I think I lost. I think I. I got nothing, man. Nothing. All good. Don't worry about it, man. And we don't have any new five star reviews, so anyone wants to leave one, just go onto iTunes. You can leave it. All you need is an email. Now, moving on to On This Day in Film History. Today is December 29th. In 1967, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is released. In 1995, 12 Monkeys is released. In 1999, The Hurricane is released. And happy birthday to Jude Law, Diego Luna, and Allison Brie. Diego Luna. <laughs> the Anchorman, right? No. What is that from? I don't know. It's Will Ferrell doing something. He doesn't say Diego Luna. Yeah, he does. Does he? Yeah. Does he? Yeah. Will Ferrell quotes Di- he says Diego Luna like oh really in a movie. Um, hold I, on. I don't know. I can't. I can't think of it. But uh, my streaming recommendation is the Hateful Eight extended edition on Netflix. I just finished it. It took me two days to get through, but it was worth it, and I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of excellent deleted footage and scenes, uh, extended scenes as well that really hone in on a lot of the characters. And give us a little bit more to chew on. I really liked it a lot and thought it was the episodic structure was really fun. So I highly recommend it on Netflix. It's um oh it's when he's doing George Bush on SNL. I think. Oh, it's on SNL. Yeah, because he's playing George Bush. He's like Diego Luna. <laughs> it's funny. He was, welcome, he was a great. Is from Your Welcome America Final Night with George Bush. Remember it was just oh like, the farewell one, like yeah, the one man yeah. show that he did. Yeah, that was great. He he was such a good George Bush. Do you know about his his uh, when he went to the White House? No. So Will Ferrell, he went to the White House to read a children's book to a bunch of kids at the White House. This is something they do. They'll have celebrities read to the kids. And this is when Bush was president. When Bush was president. And so he went, but he went as his Bush character from SNL. No way. And he read the children's book with his 100% George Bush impression. And apparently even the Secret Service agents couldn't help themselves from laughing the whole time. It apparently just brought down the house, and it was super funny from what I heard. Man, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> but they thought they actually they expected him to just show up as Will Ferrell and do it, but he just showed up as his like full costume as George Bush. It was great. <laughs> I, I wish I could have been there. He's a great. He's so funny. Back when politics weren't as dis- divisive. <laughs> <laughs> that's so. That's so damn funny. He yeah. killed Bush. Yeah. All right, uh, my stream recommendation is Prisoners, which just got put on Netflix recently. Yeah, it's been blowing up our episode on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> our Prisoners episode on YouTube is well, we did destroying. A, we did like a, a break. We broke it down with Prisoners, but yeah. I think we got to do a solo Prisoners episode soon. I think we should because we only touched on it for like 25 minutes, and we can. it was back before we really had a structure to our show uh, back then. So I think we could do a much better job. Yeah, we weren't that good at what we do, yeah. but we still appreciate everyone who tuned in back then. Yeah, but giving, yeah. giving, us, giving us a chance. So we could we could destroy a prisoners. Oh, episode. I love that movie. We it's, should do it in January. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. we'll do prisoners in January. Yeah. All right, you want to move back? Oh, do you have a rec? I already did it. Oh yeah, you already did it. Yeah. He doesn't listen. I didn't. I didn't listen at all. He doesn't listen. Uh, let's move back into Glass Onion: A Knives Out Mystery. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the things that I really loved about this movie. Obviously, we've touched on things like. The cultural uh, relevance and nuances. I love the sharp and witty dialogue. 
the clever script, really well written, great hidden details used for shadow and great Easter eggs. Like I think the uh, the blue Porsche, the miniature one that's driving around with the the sodas and the drinks and the kombucha is a great little foreshadow for an Easter egg for how the blue Porsche that Miles Braun's obsessed with and it's just like his like his pride and joy, his baby, was used during his killing of Andy, so it's a great little foreshadow and reference. Mm-hmm. Um, I like again how Benoit Blanc is so bad at Clue in Among Us. Great cameos as well. Again, Ethan Hawke, JGL, Serena Williams, and Noah Segan were the best ones for sure. Great political commentary. Um, editing was really good in this movie too, especially because a lot of this movie deals with flashbacks, whereas the first one dabbles in flashbacks. But I think the way that Ryan Johnson is giving information to the audience is different in Glass Onion versus Knives Out. Knives Out, yes, he's refusing to show us some information, but a lot of it we're learning from the flashbacks, the truth. But yeah. this one, Glass Onion, he's more of more of opening up where he's refusing us information constantly until we get the big twist and reveal of Benoit Blanc and Helen working together after Helen comes to Benoit Blanc seeking his help. Yeah, and the Mona Lisa bit was pretty funny. Although I'll say that it was uh, honestly it was predictable that the Mona Lisa was going to get destroyed by him because they kept saying he kept saying I want to be mentioned the same sentence as the Mona Lisa, and when they showed the intense security system plus uh, the flames over and over again, and then we learned that the crystal um, energy clear clear energy was uh, extremely flam- flammable and unpredictable. I was like, oh, that's the, that, he's definitely going to burn the Mona Lisa. And then that did happen. It was nice. It was cute. It was pretty funny. But like I would, in the first act, I was like, oh, he's probably going to destroy it by accident. And that's why he's going to be mentioned in the same sentence as the Mona Lisa. Uh, so that was like a fun setup. And, and it did deliver. But I thought it was a little obvious how that was going to happen. Yeah, it's really the only way he would ever be in yeah. the same sentence For, as yeah, the Mona Lisa. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, he's obviously going to destroy it, because why else would you mention a person in the Mona Lisa? <laughs> and I also loved uh, Benoit Blanc and Helen together. I thought it was like a great kind of like buddy cops, like third they act and second yeah. half of the movie. It yeah. was really fun. Janelle so, Monet did a great job off of bouncing off of Daniel Craig. Yeah, so, yeah. so great chemistry between the two of them. And, you know, Benoit, Benoit is kind of letting her go solve the pro- go find the evidence try to find the napkin so they can figure out who the killer is because that's what they need they have a bunch of stuff but he's like the final bit of evidence we need we just need to find that napkin and really clever stuff with fortunately the bullet gets lodged in her phone right was that what it was no it was a little book the little diary the little diary her sister's diary okay her sister's yeah. diary the bullet gets lodged in yeah. And then um, the hot sauce was great. Oh God, so great sauce. improvisation by Benoit Blanc. But I think their like buddy cop second half of the movie was really entertaining and really refreshing. It was a little different than with um, Martha and Benoit Blanc in the first film, where he's like working with Martha from the beginning. But he knows she's like she, his assistant. Yes, but yeah. he knows the whole time that she's with withholding yeah. information from him for that first entire film mm-hmm. because he knows that he figures out the truth and then reveals it to Martha at the end of the film. But then in this one, we have his he's working with Helen and she's solving. Well, she's trying to discover the evidence while he's kind of just like acting aloof and kind of distracting everybody to give her a chance to figure it out. Yeah. And Janelle Monae had a terrific role playing twin sisters and she did an excellent job. Uh, It's a complex role and there was a there's a lot of scenery to chew up for her. And um, she had to do very reserved acting when she was playing Helen pretending to be Andy and I think she did an excellent job um, opposite um, Daniel Craig. 
Very talented performer, and she's definitely one of the highlights of the movie. And Ryan Johnson clearly used the Mona Lisa as reference for her acting as when she's Helen acting as Andy, and like yeah. the he, when they're just he's um, Miles Braun is describing the Mona Lisa's expression, and like no one knows is she happy, is she sad, is is she elated, is she hiding something, and yeah. then you know cutting to Janelle Monet who did I think a really good job trying to emulate that face facial expression of the Mona Lisa. So, like, astutely and just, like, mirroring that really well for a lot of the film. 100%. Absolutely. As as she's acting as Andy. Yeah. And, but, it, and it, it had a very funny conclusion. Uh, I liked the destruction of the car. I thought that was really great. Yeah. Also, I did not see Duke's death happening. That was a great twist. And I like how Ryan Johnson showed two versions of the event where the memory version, how people remembered it, was that... Duke took the wrong glass by accident, and then we revealed the real truth of what really happened was that uh, Miles handed him the poisoned glass. Uh, and it, it just It's funny to see how it was accurate, how uh, perception and memories, they can alter slightly, and uh, it, you can be influenced to remember something incorrectly if someone points out something in incorrect detail, which happens in the film, and it makes everyone remember the moment differently. So I liked how Ryan Johnson played with memory in that scene. I do like in the first film how he plays with objective truth so much in the memories of each sibling as they're going back Same through thing, what yeah. happened. Yeah. He didn't do it too much in this movie. It was a little different. But I think that was one of the great strengths of the first film. It's kind of like how we were recently talking about The Last Duel with the Extra Credits podcast, our friends. And that movie is solely based on three acts of two of objective truth and one of the truth. I really like how he did that in the first film. He kind of dabbled in that in this movie, but I think he didn't want to do the same thing twice, so he, he kind of took most of that out. Yeah. yeah, but the ending was really satisfying because we get the total destruction of Miles Braun's life. And if they did like him getting arrested at the end of the movie, I don't think it would have been as satisfying because he still would have been super wealthy. We all know he's going to get arrested. Exactly. So they didn't need to show it. But it, because he's so rich, if he got arrested for a murder, he's getting off at some point. You yeah. know, no big deal. For a very wealthy billionaire, they can do whatever they want because they have so much money. But with Glass Onion, not only is his compound destroyed, but Clear is shown to be uh, unsafe. unsafe in that he can't ever get released this to the world and to the public, even though that's what he's trying to do uh, within the next couple of weeks, is releasing Clear to sell as renewable energy and sustainable energy, even though it's highly flammable. Um, but also, the destruction of the Mona Lisa's painting means that he'll lose his entire fortune and credibility with everyone around the world, but also now everyone's going to testify against him because of the napkin. Helen gave them courage. Yeah, he, Helen it. gave them yeah. courage to to stand up to, to stand him. up to him finally yeah. because he's had because the, the, they they took his side in in court back yeah, in the day exactly, yeah. and then we went against Andy. Yeah, but I do have some cons for this movie and some things I'm a little confused I a, about. I have a few cons too. Yeah, I want to go with the things I'm confused about first. So. Mm. So I wanted to know more about Alpha and what this company was. Was it a social media platform? Was it an app? I wasn't really sure yeah, it what was Alpha was yeah, and how, like, how did a napkin, writing something down on a napkin board's creation from, is Andy a computer scientist? Is she a coder? Does she work in creating technology? I wanted a little more backstory on like who Andy was in terms of like her background yeah. in addition to being like the leader of this crew that she put together because she believes in all these people. 
But like, what does An- what did Andy do? What was her expertise? She's like the super smart person, but was she a coder, computer scientist, computer engineer? Yeah. I want to know a little bit about that and how it related to her abilities to formulate the base code of this company that I'm assuming is a social media platform or an app. Yeah, and it, it took like the he took like the social network route of uh, one co-founder betraying the other co-founder. Uh, but I would have liked to know what exactly I think the unspecified nature of the company was a little a con for me a bit. And also what exactly the napkin was, because we couldn't actually see specifically what was written on it really. I would have liked to know how that napkin really influenced the the entire foundation of the company. I, I, I You don't have to tell us. You didn't have to tell us. But I would have liked to have known a little more detail of what the napkin had in it. And if Miles was such a loser, uh, a poser, unoriginal, and arrogant guy, why would Andy, like, bring her to the crew? I want to know what she saw in Miles. I can't remember if they said it in the movie, like, what she saw in Miles. Because she said, I I believed in every single one of you. You all brought something to the table, and I knew you all had potential. But what what was Miles' potential? I couldn't remember. I think that she found him to be, like, um, charming, and also he seemed to be extremely friendly and exciting. Uh, for the group is some uh, kind of along the lines lines of why she brought him in the maybe group. She, maybe he duped her. That's that's yeah. what I'm guessing. He duped her with his unoriginality, pretending to be something up else, yeah, yeah. being a poser, and she yeah. saw that and she took it as authenticity when it really yeah. wasn't. That's probably my guess. So one uh, a major con I had for the film was the background of the court case of um, Andy being betrayed by not only Miles but also their friends and how their friends testified against her about the napkin and who wrote the napkin and. Uh, they all testified that Miles wrote the napkin and Andy didn't. But what I found uh, confusing about that was that Andy was uh, a co-owner of the company, so she had, uh, you could guess, just as the same amount of wealth and power as Miles. Why would I didn't understand why the friends all took Miles' side, even though they knew he was lying. Um, I, I, I found that because they, they could, Andy could have had them on her, on her side, no problem, because she had the same amount of ownership in the company. So I was, for me, I didn't really fully get behind why everyone betrayed her in the court case. Because you know I, I mean? think because with his route, he became more successful. What he wanted to do with Alpha going forward. No, I understand. But like why the friends betrayed her? Because she had the same amount of ownership in the company at that time. You know what I mean? No, oh, yeah, yeah. I get yeah. that. Because he ended up kind of not blackmailing them, but like they all were dependent on him and that teeth that they kept bringing up. They weren't dependent on him back then. She was still just as much an owner of the company as he, as him back then mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. But now at this point, they're super dependent on him. I mean, yeah, maybe because they felt like they were indebted to him for helping them in their careers early on. Um, when it's revealed in the bar how she's telling uh, Benoit how he helped each one of them like get like hired or referenced for like a job or whatever or like an interview. Maybe they felt indebted to him. But I felt like the betrayal of their old friend Andy seemed out of place for everyone. Uh, and obviously they're all extremely dependent on Miles now in the in the present because he's the owner of Alpha flat out and really funds their lives. But back then it wasn't the case. Gotcha, so I found yeah. that that one okay, that yeah, threw I me off. You're saying. I, didn't, I see what you're saying. I didn't see their motivations for betraying their friend Andy completely. I got to revisit it again because I haven't seen it since it, we watched it when it came out yeah. um, in November on November 23rd. And we're filming this December, what does it say, the 23rd? So we're, we're filming Today's it. Today's the 18th, the 19th. Is it? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, no, it's 22nd. Yeah, it was 22nd. That was, all right. Yeah, you're leaving for Christmas So tomorrow. we're filming it the day before it gets released on Netflix. So yeah. it's been a month since we've seen it, but I'm yeah. trying to remember everything specifically. But I'm sure we're, I'm, I, I might be missing a few details that yeah, I'm trying we to Yeah, we weren't able to rewatch it, obviously. Uh, yeah, because we just watched it once in theaters because it was out for a week. 
And also, one little tiny thing for me is clear. So clear is this sustainable energy that Miles developed with his massive fortune that he's going to start selling to the entire world. And the thing with clear is it's highly flammable, it's highly dangerous, and he's basically uh, twisting um, uh, uh, Toussaint's arm to push it forward and get it going to make a huge fortune off of clear. Now, the thing with clear is... Obviously, it's highly flammable and dangerous, but like and it's hydrogen based. Yeah, it's hydrogen yeah. based. But how does Miles think that like once this hits the market, homes aren't going to start blowing up? They're not going to come asking questions to him. So yeah. like the whole concept of him wanting to get pushed out—I mean, get clear out there as a new mainstream energy for everybody around the world when everyone would just be blowing up their homes with it. I was just like, does that make total sense? Because I know Cause he would, yeah. they, they would come after him. He would, like, the first home that blows up, they'd be like, all right, we're going after, like, what the hell? Yeah, because um, obviously Ryan Johnson wanted to portray him as a bonehead. And I just, I also found it just, it, it didn't totally fit because it's a terrible business plan. Like, it, there's no way it would ever work, especially if your head scientist is saying you're going to fuck, you're going to, like, kill people. Kill people. It just seemed like a silly thing for him to pursue because it seemed to be destined for failure immediately. Um, and so I, I didn't really see the point, like, why he felt confident in pushing it so hard when it was obvious it was going to fail quite quickly. My guess is that in Miles Braun's mind, he's like, I'm such a billionaire. I'm so wealthy. And maybe this is a critique that Ryan Johnson is making on the wealthy class is that even though he can make a destructive property that's being sold to people and destroying their lives, like clear, he'll still be fine. He still would have made his fortune and he'll get out of all legal trouble because of his fortune. That's what yeah. I'm assuming is that Ryan Johnson's making a critique with clear. Yeah, perhaps. And I, I guess so. Yeah. Miles Braun, Miles Braun's uh, motivation of like, even though it's going to fail, I'm still going to make so much money. It won't yeah. even matter. I'm going to get off scot-free. Yeah. I think, I, I I think he's so. making, I think he's making a critique on billionaires with that. I suppose so. Yeah. I guess that's the point, but I, I agree. I mean, it, it, you know, it's just, he, the audience, you just accept it as, as it is. Cause he is portrayed, he's portrayed as an idiot idiot because he he murders uh he murders andy and he takes his own car and just murders her at her house and obviously he's witnessed by duke driving away in that same car so he's just an idiot you know what i mean and he's it's not like he's ryan's cheating that way he's constantly showing him to be dim-witted which is makes all of his actions valid sure like that like there's a terrible way to murder someone it's, it's you're gonna get caught but that's the character he's an idiot and he thinks that he can get away with anything because he's so successful and he's so powerful. So that is how the character is written. There's one thing I was confused about. Um, maybe you can help me. I just I'm trying to remember the sequences of events. I I I found it confusing that Miles didn't find it strange that um, who he thought was Andy showed up at the island. Did because he know he that he, she had a twin? I, she had, he had to have known. She but had did a twin. he know? I'm just confused. Did he know that it was the twin the whole time, or did he think that Helen, or did he think that Andy somehow survived and showed up? He think he thought Andy somehow survived. Yeah, and showed because up. when the news story about Andy's death is uh, revealed to him by Duke, they both that's when they he both realized, celebrate. Yeah. So then I was like, I was confused as to. So he thought that he unsuccessfully tried to murder her. Yes. Okay, so I was just a little confused about that. Because Andy, he gave Andy the sleeping medication while yeah. they're having tea and coffee, yeah. then put her in her car with the engine running in the garage to, yeah. make, it se to make it seem like a suicide. And then Benoit hid the death from the public to prevent the press from knowing about it. Mm -hmm. so, then, so then Miles thought that it was really Andy at the island. Yeah, so he, yeah, Benoit had Helen hide the death yeah. so that it wouldn't hit the news yet. Mm -hmm. And then 
when 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 Helen showed up as Andy to the the, the island invitation to the party, Miles thought it was Andy. For Miles real. thought, yeah, Miles thought it was Andy. Absolutely. So my question, I had a, a my, another question about that is why did my why did Miles send the invitation to her? Did he send the invitation before he tried to kill her, or did he send the invitation? You know what I mean? The invitation that uh, that Helen ends up opening to the event. Yeah, you're right because it opens up where everyone receives their package, yes, right? Yeah. And they're trying to figure it out and do all the puzzles, and it's really exactly. funny. And yeah. then it, it cuts to who we think is Andy smashing it open. Yeah. So why would he send her an invite if he killed her? Because the 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 other members, she sent the the e- she got he received the email before he sent the package, I believe. Maybe he sent the invite to make it seem like I wouldn't kill her. I was inviting I invited her to, her to the thing. That's my maybe yeah, that's the case. That's probably why. Okay, that would make sense. That makes sense. I yeah. wish they could have s- explained that somehow because that really threw me off. Because I, I was trying to figure out the the course of events in order of chronological order, where because first um, Andy uh, gets the proof and then tells the friends and says, "I'm gonna." You guys need to admit that you wronged me and lied, or else I'm going to expose everyone. And then um, Duke sent a copy of that to Miles, like warning him. And then that's what caused Miles to kill Andy. So my question is, when did Miles send Andy the package of the invitation? And it was it either before he tried to kill her, or was it after he tried to kill her to prove to make it seem like? Oh, why, why would I kill her if I sent her an invitation? I bet it was all the same time because Helen, she was there. Yeah. She said, I think she said to Benoit that like after everyone left, I was I found that this box was there and I, yeah. I cracked it open. I knew it was some bullet BS from Miles, so I bashed it open. Yeah. So I think it was there by sent before by Miles. Before yeah. either before he killed her or like maybe he sent it to her like that day to make it seem like I sent her this invitation. Why would I kill her? Okay. That would okay, that makes sense. Cause I was I was thrown off by that. I couldn't really figure out the order of the packages of the package being sent and when exactly it was in the timeline of, of Andy's death because he clearly sent her an invitation he yeah. and because she clearly accepted the invite obviously it was Helen that Aunt, that was Andy but even yeah. he was like oh my god she survived yeah but also you know I, I feel like <laughs> wouldn't Andy like want to try to kill him right there yeah <laughs> so yeah it, it, that threw me because like you just try yeah. to make me look like I committed suicide yes yeah, so, yeah but so, also Andy's perspective she's probably trying to if 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 Helen's Andy and thinking as Andy, Miles thinks he just tried to kill me, but I didn't. I survived. I'm gonna try to take him down somehow. Yeah, I feel like Miles should have been more on threat, on edge, more on edge. I felt like Miles. Defensive. Miles was very, Miles was way too relaxed for Andy showing up if he thought it was really Andy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Obviously, he's surprised, but the way it was portrayed is like he's surprised that an old old friend that he betrayed 20 years ago showed up, not that someone he thinks he murdered showed up. Now, I feel like, uh, obviously, he was surprised at first, but then I feel like he was too relaxed about it for the entire second half of the film. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, that, it was throwing me off a little bit. Great first act, though. Great first act, yeah. <laughs> it was very good. And I love the twist. I was just like, the delivery of the invitation is what threw me off. I could, yeah, I couldn't we're trying out. to remember it right yeah. now. I couldn't, if anyone so knows, ago. just let us, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure they, I'm sure they said it in the movie. I can't order it in my head, the the order of events for Andy. But I think we did a good job. Yeah. I think we did a good job. I think yeah. that's all I got to say. But overall, I really enjoyed Glass Onion. It was definitely a worthy sequel to the first film because mm-hmm. the first one's so excellent, so well-loved. 
but I think it's, he did a really solid job with the sequel. I'm really looking forward to seeing the third one. Eventually, when that comes out, who knows when he's going to finish writing that and start going into production on that, hopefully really soon, because I think people will have a thirst for Knives Out. I'm excited to see how everyone's enjoying it as it's being released on Netflix tomorrow night after we're filming this, but it will have already been released on Netflix by the time this episode posts. So let us know what you all think of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Is it better than the original? Is it just as good? There's a little, little peg down like we believe. It's a little not as great as the first one, but still a very good watch. Worth your time. Awesome movie by Ryan Johnson in the production. Everybody cast and crew is absurdly talented and Really enjoyed it. Very funny. Great dialogue. Great script. Great production. Everything about this movie was stellar. Even though we had a few little picks at the end, we still really, really liked it. And yeah. everything about it was was terrific, really. Couldn't agree more. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in to our episode on Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Make sure to get those live tickets for our show. The link in our Instagram bios will take you there. Also put the links down below in the YouTube episode of this video and on the Spotify and Apple podcast bio and all the po- podcast episode bios. The links will be there as well. They should be clickable. You can get the live in-person tickets in Los Angeles, or you can just watch the live broadcast on online wherever you are around the world when it's airing with everybody else in the audience it's gonna be a lot of fun it's gonna be a blast take care everybody talk to you soon see you next time this episode of raiders of the lost podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons luke exelston tyler mcfly darren singleton anthony DeMeo, john a graz becca keen cody moen benjamin cook calvin cam raiders of the lost podcast is a mirror image production Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.